The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Part 3, Book 4, Chapters 1 through 8. These chapters begin with the mother's desperate journey, wandering aimlessly and barefoot through the woods, eating as birds forage, sleeping wherever she can lie down, taking shelter with the rats, and muttering the only words she still recalls, the names of her children and the Torg. Those who have read Les Miserables will recall the heart-wrenching account of Fantine, who, to save her child, is driven first to sell her body, then her hair, then her teeth. Michelle Flachard is walking the same road. Quote, she thought of the adventures she had gone through, of everything she had suffered and accepted, of the encounters, the indignities, the conditions laid down, the bargains proposed and submitted to, sometimes for shelter, sometimes for a piece of bread, sometimes merely for information as to how to find her way. A destitute woman is more unfortunate than a destitute man, because she is an instrument of pleasure." Unquote. I missed that last phrase the first few times I read this novel, that agonizingly awful phrase. When she learns that nineteen men have been declared outlaws, sentenced to execution, and besieged and surrounded in the Torg, she pleads for someone to point her in the right direction, begins walking, and doesn't look back. She walks to the point of, quote, that dire fatigue which begins in the muscles and finally goes into the bones, unquote. the fatigue of a slave. She is walking the Via Dolorosa, Jesus' path to crucifixion, the way of suffering. Meanwhile, a group of peasants, lying in ambush to destroy the passing guillotine, attack a cart guarded by gendarmes. Twelve gendarmes, not twenty. A ladder, not the guillotine. The ladder that could save her children. Just when this desperate mother seems to have lost her reason, when her knees give way beneath her, when she feels herself in the presence of immense abandonment, she is greeted by a voice, a cannon shot. This is the same cannon shot that signals the battle has begun. This is the same cannon shot that makes sweet Georgette raise her little finger and say, Boom. All the plot lines of this novel have come together, their intersection marked by an explosion. With the battle upon them, Simordan fears for the safety of his child, Govan, the only affection he had on earth. He knows that Govan is the sort of leader who will throw himself into the fray, and he knows that this attack, through a narrow breach, where the defenders lie in wait behind a rhetoric, means near certain death for the vanguard. So, he determines a way that he can both maintain a ruthless devotion to his cause and spare Govan. He can forestall the battle by offering them his own head in exchange for Lantanax. As the white-haired old man had said to the townspeople listening to the proclamation of the crier, if they have Lantanac, they have everything. If Lantanac is captured, the soul is captured. If Lantanac is killed, Vendée is dead. The Republicans want Lantanac. The Royalists want Simordan. He will offer himself up in an even trade. 
even if it means they will roast him over a slow fire or flay him like a dog. He consents. But they decline. Radub approaches Govan to ask for a favor. He wants to be first into the breach, for he wants to save the children or die trying. The mother has arrived at the plateau overlooking the tower. The ladder that could save the children has been destroyed. Simordan's ultimatum has been denied. Radub has claimed his right to lead the attack. Our hearts have stopped. The battle is about to begin. I called my second post to the Facebook group, Higher Than God. I love literature in which characters take their values seriously. Very seriously. Recently, I noticed that some of my favorite scenes from literature have something in common. To show just how seriously a character devotes himself to his values, the author will have him express that devotion in what is conventionally regarded as the highest possible moral terms. In some form, he will have him place that value above God. In this chapter, Radub asks for the favor of leading the army into the breach. He rebukes Govan for saving him until he is needed, asserts his right to be in the vanguard of the attack, and declares that he wants the children saved or he wants to be killed. And he says, quote, Sir, if anything happens to one hair on their angelic heads, I swear by everything that's sacred that I, Sergeant Radub, will get even with the Eternal Father for it." Unquote. Within this moral universe, it is hard to imagine a more powerful expression of your commitment to your values than to say, if they are not achieved, you will swear revenge on God. In the play The Miracle Worker, after so many years of disappointed hopes, the parents of deaf and blind Helen Keller have given up on any ambition to unlock her brain and to give her language, and instead have resigned themselves to teaching her the obedience of a well-trained dog. Annie Sullivan, Helen's teacher, considers giving up her idea of the original sin. Annie knows that words can be Helen's eyes, and she won't take less. Mrs. Keller says, quote, I think you ask too much of her and yourself. God may not have meant Helen to have the eyes you speak of." Unquote. And Annie replies, I mean her too. With this simple retort, she has placed her own will above that of God. In the play Cyrano de Bergerac, Cyrano, the brilliant wit, passionate lover, and swashbuckling hero, pays routine visits to a convent, where the nuns eagerly await each new appearance. Anticipating his arrival, they say in chorus, He is such fun, he makes us almost laugh, and he teases everyone, and pleases everyone, and we all love him. When Sister Marth says, I am afraid he is not a good Catholic, the other nuns declare that some day they will convert him. But Mother Marguerite scolds them. I forbid you to worry him. Perhaps he might stop coming here. Rather than risk the displeasure of Cyrano, she would risk the displeasure of God. You will discover yet another example in the chapters of 93 to come. I will remind you when we get there. 
unless you point it out to me first. The third of my posts to the Facebook group concerned my favorites from Part 3, Book 4, Chapters 1-8. through 8. I had many, many favorite lines in this section, but I've decided to focus on a single nine-word phrase. He was at ease in the ferocity of duty. This is said of Simorden, who has sent for the guillotine and intends to behead Lantanac in his own house. Quote, to kill Lantanac was to kill Vendée. To kill Vendée was to save France. Simorden did not hesitate. He was at ease in the ferocity of duty. Unquote. I tried to think of other figures from history or characters in literature who might fit this description. The first that occurred to me was Sir Thomas More, as he is portrayed in A Man for All Seasons. More was a man of absolute devotion to principle. He refused to endorse Henry VIII's request for a papal dispensation to divorce his wife, or to take an oath of supremacy declaring Henry VIII supreme head of the Church of England, even when it meant he might be charged with treason, imprisoned in the Tower of London, and sentenced to execution. Here is More's pristine conscience, laid out in a few exquisite exchanges from the play. The first of the exchanges. Norfolk. I'm not a scholar, as Master Cromwell never tires of pointing out, and frankly I don't know whether the marriage was lawful or not. But damn it, Thomas, look at those names. You know those men. Can't you do what I did, and come with us, for friendship? More. And when we stand before God, and you are sent to paradise for doing according to your conscience, and I am damned for not doing according to mine, will you come with me for friendship? The Second Exchange Cromwell, you don't seem to appreciate the seriousness of your position. More. I defy anyone to live in that cell for a year and not appreciate the seriousness of his position. Cromwell. Yet the state has harsher punishments. More. You threaten like a dockside bully. Cromwell. How should I threaten? More. Like a minister of state with justice. Cromwell. Oh, justice is what you're threatened with. More. Then I'm not threatened. And the third? More. You want me to swear to the act of succession? Margaret. God more regards the thoughts of the heart than the words of the mouth, or so you've always told me. More. Yes. Margaret. Then say the words of the oath, and in your heart think otherwise. More. What is an oath, then, but words we say to God? More is profoundly at ease in and committed to duty, but he is not ferocious. I asked my co-workers, Andrew Lewis and Jimmy Emmy, if they could think of anyone who fit the description better than More. It was a remarkably difficult and remarkably valuable effort one that helped us to even better appreciate the distinct character of Simorden. Through the elimination of characters who just didn't quite fit, we were able to determine that the person must be 
one, principled, two, utterly sincere in his commitment to his principles, three, perhaps mistaken, but not evil, four, serene, dispassionate, at ease, and five, cruel, violent, and ferocious in the execution of his duty. So, if you'd like to join the Facebook discussion, you can tell me if you can think of someone who is at ease in the ferocity of duty. And P.S. Will you read A Man for All Seasons with me?